Good morning, Peachtree. What a joy and a privilege it is for us to be together. Happy Palm Sunday to each and every one of you. It's also March 28th, which means it is my mother-in-law's birthday. Happy birthday, Nana Queen. Hope that each and every one of you are doing really well. If you're in the Atlanta area, we're dealing with the invasion of pollen. Kelly and I were outside yesterday and you could see waves of pollen just flying off of the tree. You feel like you need to wash your car about every hour and a half in the city of Atlanta these days. But I hope that this uh, message, this time of us gathering together finds you well and that we get to experience the goodness of God together in what we call the restoration of all things. Today, I wanna to begin the message with a story of this famous figure. This is Cassius Clay, this is Muhammad Ali, and he is obviously one of the greatest boxers in all of history. And so Muhammad Ali, when he was kind of the height of his powers and prowess and his fame, one time was getting into uh, first class for uh, a plane trip somewhere. And while he was flying on this plane, the, you know, the stewardess and the flight attendants and the captain was making the announcements and all these different things that we kind of are used to in getting ready to launch for a flight. And the flight attendant was walking through the cabin and was reminding people to put on their seatbelt. And she noticed that Muhammad Ali's seatbelt was not on. And so she said, sir, will you please buckle your seatbelt? And he looked at her and he said, do you know who I am? And she says, yes, I know who you are. And he says, I am Superman. And Superman doesn't need a seatbelt. To which the flight attendant in a stroke of brilliance leaned in and said, sir, Superman doesn't need an airplane. Buckle up, pal. And so Muhammad Ali, the famous boxer, had to put on his seatbelt so that the plane could take off. What I love about that story is how endearing and enduring it is in describing each and every one of us, that we all have those do you know who I am moments with our pride and our sense of greatness. Muhammad Ali referred to himself and many other people referred to him as the greatest. And he just seemed larger than life. And yet, I don't know about you, but do you remember that moment when he was in his advanced stages of Parkinson's and he carried the torch in the Olympics? Or do you remember this haunting portrait towards the end of his life? Muhammad Ali, the greatest. There comes a point in each of our lives when we realize that the things that we use to prop ourselves up, our greatness, our significance, they don't really last for forever. And what I wanna share with us today is how Jesus on Palm Sunday redefines greatness. You see, Jesus came to be with us as king, but it wasn't an ordinary king. He didn't ride in on a war horse, but on a donkey. And we're about to see the ultimate redefinition of greatness in today's story. We're in the midst of a series of messages. We're actually concluding that series today. It's been a long time coming on the Gospel of John, where we've talked about that life-giving belief that these encounters with Jesus give us. And we've talked about how that changes us. 
that in each of these experiences, encounters, collisions with Jesus, we are transformed. We are no longer cynical. We are no longer empty. We are no longer religious, ashamed, paralyzed, no longer hungry, no longer condemned, blind, hopeless, no longer lost, no longer holding back, and today, no longer insignificant. John chapter 13, starting in the first verse. It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God, and so he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapping a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. And when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You know, it's not often that you remember a Bible study that was almost three decades ago. But I very vividly remember the series of studies that occurred almost 30 years ago for me. Back when I was in college, I did a summer fellowship, a summer internship, working as a junior high ministry intern at the Memorial Drive Presbyterian Church in Houston, Texas. I want to show you a picture of the crop of interns that we had for that year. There I am in the middle. We were all goofing around on these little kids' toys that were in the middle of the plaza. We were getting ready for vacation Bible school as we were setting up that week. And every single week throughout the course of that summer, there was an associate pastor there. His name was Chuck Jones, a brilliant guy with a PhD who invited the summer interns to come to his office and to sit down and to have a Bible study. What he had done is he had identified the top 100 passages in the Bible according to him. And as we were in that Bible study, he had the same format each week, a series of three questions. The questions are these. What does it say about us? What does it say about God? What does it say about our relationship with God? Now, this was not a formula. This was a kind of means by which we could explore the Bible together. And so, Ever since that day, I read a passage and these questions come to mind. And so as a case study, I'd love to equip you with that same Bible study kind of framework. 
And to do that, I want to look at today's passage. And so first, what does this passage say about us? In other words, what does this say about human nature? What does this say about the way that life really works? Well, today's story is the famous story in John chapter 13 of the washing of the disciples' feet. You need to know a couple of things about the washing of feet in the ancient world. One, kind of like the pollen that's all over Atlanta right now, dirt was all over the ground because there were no paved roads of significance back then. And so wherever you walked, you would get dirty. And, um, and so when you would come in from a trip or from being outside, you would, in order to not get your house dirty, you would wash your feet. And usually there was a servant who was there to be able to do that menial task. Part of the other reason for the significance of this is not just not getting your house dirty, is the way that they would eat a meal together. This is the Passover supper. This is the long leisurely meal where all of them are gathering together to celebrate the salvation of God's people that happened um, in Egypt oh so long ago. And so let me show you a picture of when it says they would recline at table, what that could have looked like. You see how they're kind of like lying around a lower table? And so sometimes you, you know, depending on what you were positioned, you, you wouldn't necessarily be all that far from someone else's feet. So it was the highest degree of courtesy or maybe the highest degree of discourtesy if you had dirty feet while you were lounging at a long and leisurely meal with people. And so the occasion of this John chapter 13 passage is here you have the most significant meal of the year. Here you have the moment where they should clearly making sure that they're following all the different protocols for Passover and preparing their hearts for this incredible celebration of God's salvation. And yet when they're there, there's no one to wash their feet. And all the disciples kind of look around and they're like, that's beneath me. I'm not doing that. Can you think of many tasks in your life where you've thought, you know what, that's beneath me. I'm not going to do that. One of the things that this passage says about us is how reluctant we are to serve, how reluctant we are to do the small things and to infuse them with great significance. We had some staff training earlier this week, and we learned the story of this man, Dick Nunes, who was kind of the head of Disney World as it was brought into its original construction. And there's a famous story of him kind of helping to open this particular building, which was the Contemporary Hotel. So it's the early 70s. This is what the hotel looked like under construction, and then this is what the hotel looks like today. And so they're getting ready to have the grand opening to the Contemporary Hotel. And as they are doing so, they had a little mix-up. The mix-up was that the workers showed up in order to lay the sod because the sod had not been laid and all the press and everybody were going to show up that day. And the sod wasn't there, and yet they had workers. And so because they didn't want to just pay the workers to stand around and do nothing, the workers eventually left after a couple of hours. It wasn't too long after the workers left that all the sod showed up. And so now you have no sod on the ground. You have no workers in which to lay that sod. And the press and everybody are getting ready to 
show up in the not too distant future. And so Dick Nunes challenged everybody, starting with himself, taking off his jacket, rolling up his sleeves. He said, we're all gonna do this together. And they started to lay sod. You can imagine there was a variety of different responses to this and that there was one particular executive who was keep trying to kind of argue that they shouldn't be doing this, that this was beneath him. And he kept pushing the point and eventually he said, you know, as his excuse, he said, you know, I've never laid sod before, I don't know how to do it. And at this point, Dick Nunes is sweating and he's working and he's doing it and he holds up a piece of sod and he said, it's not that hard, green side up and he throws it down on the ground. You know, you and I are so reluctant to want to roll up our sleeves and to do work that we think is beneath us and work that might make us feel a little dirty. And yet, what we're about to discover is that no matter what our position is in this world, we're called to serve. So first, what does this passage say about us? It says that we are reluctant to serve. What does it say about God? In other words, the Bible, Chuck Jones long ago would say, the Bible is primarily a theological book. It not only describes how life works, how life ought to work, the nature of humanity and how things happen. One of the things that we also are trying to figure out is who is God in his character? How do we understand the nature of the one that we love and adore, the one who came to love and adore us. And so what does this passage say about God? Even though in the midst of our reluctance, we notice that God is quick to serve us. Here's a picture of what it means for God to serve us. It is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who brought sight to the blind, the one who caused a lame man to leap for joy, the one who called forth a dead man to be raised. He removed his outer robe. This rabbi, this teacher, this master took a basin and a towel and began to wash their feet. As reluctant as we are to serve, God is quick to serve us. He empties himself, taking on the form of a servant. This is what we notice in this passage. The character of God is revealed, that he loves us and serves us in this way. There's a pastor in North Carolina who I remember long ago telling a story of um, a guy by the name of Walter. This is kind of a parable, a fable. And Walter is going to work in his first ever job and he longs to kind of have the significance of becoming an executive one day, but when he applies for the job, he's not really qualified for anything but to start at the low part of the totem pole for that company. The lowest paying job in the company was working in the mailroom. And so Walter began to work in the mailroom and he kept working and working and he would deliver the mail to each of the different offices and he would see those beautiful offices and long for one day to be up there. One day while he was in the mailroom, he heard the scurrying of a rodent 
and sure enough, there was a mouse in the corner of the mailroom and Walter trapped it and was going to begin to catch it. And right before he was about to catch it, the mouse began to talk and said, please don't hurt me. I'm a magic mouse and I will give you whatever you wish. Well, Walter knew that this was an amazing opportunity and he said, I wanna be a vice president in this company. And poof, before you know it, Walter is now in one of the pretty offices and he has significant responsibilities in the company. After a while, Walter is not satisfied with just being a vice president. He wants to be a president. So he goes back to that magic mouse that he has kept and the mouse makes him the president and then eventually the CEO and the chairman of the board. And Walter is now the most significant person in the most significant company in America. As he's filled with himself and he is so proud of himself and thinking about how happy he is, he passes by an office where he sees somebody on their knees praying. Walter didn't know anything about this. And so he just said, excuse me, what are you doing? And the man scrambled to his feet and said, I'm so sorry. I was just, before I started my day, I just wanted to pray. Walter asked a few more questions, went back to his CEO office, and he turned to his magic mouse and said, I have one more request. I would like to be like God. And poof, Walter was back where he started from in the mailroom. The very character of God is to serve. And so what does this passage say about us? It says we're reluctant to serve. What does this passage say about God? It says that God comes to serve us. And what does this passage say about our relationship with God? In other words, the Bible is primarily about how we are called to live. It's called, it's how we're called to be in relationship with God. We're created in the image of God to reflect his goodness in the world. Here's how we demonstrate this and see this in today's passage. John chapter 13, starting in 16th verse. Very, I truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So if we recognize our reluctance to serve and we recognize that the very character of God is to serve and that God calls us not to be the greatest, but to become the servant, then one of the things that we discover is that we are going to live a new kind of life in dedication and in service to others. In other words, we don't use our position, our greatness. Jesus said the one who wants to become great must become a servant. The one who wants to exalt himself must first humble himself. This is just the way that life works. And it's the way that life is meant to flourish. A couple of years ago, I read an amazing story of a group of high school boys in Ohio. They were a part of the Ignatius School and they decided to take on an insignificant task. They kept reading as they formed a society called the Joseph of Arimathea Society. 
They kept reading about people who were dying alone. And they kept help wondering what was happening at those funerals with somebody who died alone. And so in this society, they volunteered to serve as pallbearers for those who had died in isolation. Let me show you some pictures of what that looked like. Here you have an example of those boys carrying a casket of obviously a veteran. Here you have some of those same boys carrying a different casket of someone who had died alone. In those moments, they would gather around the grave and in a great moment of solemnity, they would say this, Dear Lord, thank you for opening our hearts and minds to this work of mercy. We are here to bear witness to the life and the passing of this person. He died alone with no family to comfort him. But today, we are his family. We are here as his sons. We are honored to stand together before him now to commemorate his life, to remember him in death as we now commend his soul to your eternal rest. I don't know about you, but for me, I was probably in stage one of high selfishness as a high school boy. And yet here were these boys learning what it was like to serve. One of them was interviewed and said, you know, it puts a lot in perspective to, to go back to a test or a quiz or to some of the kind of the silliness of what high school can be. To know that what really matters is who you are before God and with your family and friends. They went to the St. Ignatius School. And when I was reading this story, I couldn't help but recall a prayer of St. Ignatius that's this. Teach us, Lord, to serve as you deserve, to give and not count the cost, to fight and not heed the wounds, to toil and not seek for rest, to labor and not to ask for any reward save that of knowing that we do your will. And Jesus said, those who want to become the greatest must become a servant. And that you will be blessed if you do these things. So what's the framework? What does this passage say about us? We're reluctant to serve. What does it say about God? That he came to serve. What does it say about our relationship with God? That we're called to serve. You see, no matter what passage you face, that passage is primarily about human nature, about what God does in response to our human nature, and how now we should live. And then every once in a while when you read a passage, there's a part of that passage that just sticks out for you. And in John chapter 13, that's this for me. Describing Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the what? To the end. That word in Greek is telos. 
And it means perfect. It means complete. It means the end. The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1 says that he who began a good work will bring it to completion, to the telos. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12 talks about how we can offer ourselves as a living sacrifice and that that is God's perfect or telos will. The Bible tells us at the end in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the telos, the end. But most importantly of all, Jesus hanging on the cross, one of his last words says, it is finished to tell us day. The root word there is telos. Jesus loves us completely. And he says to be perfect, be complete, be a finished work. And we do that by serving. The way that we serve and your homework for this week, as we anticipate the cross and the resurrection, your homework this week is to find a task that seems beneath you and to do it in the name of Jesus Christ. And the other thing that you need to know is that when Jesus washed the disciples' feet is that Judas was there, the one who was to betray him. Jesus washes Judas's feet just moments before Judas will betray him. There is no task too small. There is no one who is too insignificant. Find a small task that no one else will do. Do it with great love. Find a person that is hard or no one seems to love and find a way to love them. The ultimate expression of this, of course, is the cross. And I want to end today's message by showing you a local artist in Atlanta and his depiction of Jesus hanging on the cross. And for a moment, just as we enter into Holy Week, recall that he wore the crown of thorns, the pain, the suffering, the agony of him laying down his life so that we might be forgiven and freed. And take a moment here to just reflect upon how he loves us all the way to the end. That he was not reluctant. That he came and he offered his all. Let's pray. Eternal and loving God, we confess our unwillingness to roll up our sleeves, to get our hands dirty. And we often look around us and say, I'm not doing that. And yet you, our master and Lord and teacher, showed us a different way. That you have a heart for service that you did not come to be served, but to serve and to offer your life as a ransom for many. 
were it not for your heart of service, you never would have gone to the cross. Thank you, God, that you loved us all the way with a complete love, a perfect love. Thank you for being a finisher. And so help us, God, to now pick up the task that is still to be done to serve and to love the people around us. And so, God, I specifically pray for us to find something that seems in our own perceptions to be beneath us and to fill it with your great love that we might come alongside those who seem insignificant and share with them the significance and greatness that can only come from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.